Hello everyone, Sława, Sława Bogom and welcome to the next episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul. We have a little bit of a difficult living situation today, so there'll be some meowing cats in the background and you can hear some children. I, I honestly really cannot do anything about it, so we'll just have to soldier through, which kind of is a little bit uh, fitting for the topic of our today's episode. Because today we are going to talk about the original Slavic patriarchy and we are going to be talking about it in order to figure out what were men for in Slavic societies. So, um, as I will talk about it later, men actually did have to soldier through quite a lot of things, so so will I and you as well. Well, that's what, okay. So the reason we are going to be talking about men in Slavic societies is because we have already, you know, talked about women. And I thought that, you know, it's very important to keep the balance between the sexes. So we are going to be talking about men too. In order to figure out the place of men in the Slavic society, we are going to need some science. Uh, we are going to well, need some dictionaries and uh, logic and common sense. So it is all going to be absolutely awesome. At least I think so. It's going to be awesome for me and I hope it, you will also find it not too shabby. So yeah, let's, let's go. So patriarchy is not really a nice word nowadays. It's a bad word. It's oppressive one. And, uh, you know, according to some, it should just cease to exist. Uh, we can argue if there is place for patriarchy in the modern world, but we cannot really argue that patriarchy is a or was a part of the Slavic tradition. I mean, maybe someone can argue, but that won't be very smart, because how do you argue with historical facts? I mean, many try, especially nowadays. They try, you know, to cancel history and historical figures and events. But not, that's not really a way forward, is it? I mean, if you start denying that something happened, you cannot figure out why it happened. And then you don't know how to avoid it in the future, so it really doesn't make much sense. And it's not very responsible either, because among many things, it leads to confusion. For example, there are some people who deny that Holocaust happened. They claim that it was all made up and the 6 million Jewish people who were wiped off the face of Earth only like 80 years ago, I don't know, it was all made up, invented. And obviously, Holocaust did happen. It happened. It was dreadful. It left a terrible scar on many generations of people and it should never be forgotten. And one of the reasons it should never be forgotten is because we know, I mean, historians, psychologists, sociologists and other academics and even some hobbyists like me, we know why it happened. It happened because through Nazi propaganda, people of certain beliefs and backgrounds became dehumanized. So, to start with, Nazi propaganda promoted the idea that people of Jewish beliefs and of Jewish background are too prominent in the society and that therefore it was okay to close their businesses. 
confiscate their property and effectively cancel them. Then, once Jews were cancelled, the Nazi propaganda started presenting Jews as not humans. They started saying that the Jews that have already been cancelled out of society, they don't really deserve to live at all, so they deserve to have their lives cancelled too. So not only the presence in the society, but just, you know, they deserve to cease to exist. And this is how, in small steps, one can get the whole society to believe that it is okay to kill six million people. You know, you start small with some blame and some disgust and some singling out, and then you build up on that step by step from cancelling the businesses to cancelling out from the society to just killing without any remorse and any second thoughts or doubts that what you are doing is right. And this is why here in Vitya's project, we are not going to cancel patriarchy and any other part of Slavic history. We're not going to cancel science or language or pretty much anything. If something has happened in the past or it exists and is relevant to the topic of Slavic tradition, we are going to be talking about it because it is important and it needs to be known and considered. And the reason why this you know, introduction is so long is because I want to explain that what I will be talking about today is relevant, is real, and was real for our ancestors, and therefore cannot be ignored when we try to figure out the core of the Slavic way of being. So basically, when we want to find the Slavic soul. So, before we dive into the topic, we have to first establish one thing. We have to establish what a man was for our ancestors. Because, believe it or not, is not actually as obvious as it seems. It, it really is not. So, a part of being a man in the eyes of our ancestors was being biologically male. And being biologically male means having a Y chromosome in your genome and not having any other biological factors inhibiting the expression of this chromosome. I assume that every listener knows what a chromosome is. It's, it's a part of genome, so of the DNA. Every human being has chromosomes, most commonly 23 pairs of them, but not always. And the 23rd pair of the chromosomes, are, human chromosomes, are called sex chromosomes. And in a male DNA, there are two different sex chromosomes. One is called X and the other one Y. So the Y chromosome contains a genetically encoded information on how, on how to develop into a biological male. But information encoded in the DNA is not really real. <laughs> it cannot start to exist unless it gets translated into what is called a gene product, which is either a protein or a type of molecule that is called RNA. And the gene product, so the pro protein or RNA, makes the body grow and work in a way that is programmed in the DNA. So, basically, the information encoded in the DNA, for example, in the Y chromosome, has to get translated into a gene product, and only then it can cause, for example, a male body to develop. 
But the problem is that the DNA information doesn't always get to be translated properly. Sometimes some info from the DNA gets lost, like due to environmental factors, for example, kind of, you know, the environmental factors get in the way and the translated gene product cannot do what it's supposed to do. And this is why we can get people who have Y chromosome but don't have a male body. So they are genetically male, but the male genes are not expressed properly. And in cases like that, it is called that these people's genotypes, so the genes, are male, but the phenotype, so the way they look, is not male. But looking as a male is only one part of being phenotypically male. The other part is having testicles, so balls, that produce androgens, so sex hormones. One of the most known androgen is testosterone, which, for example, is being given to trans people who want to present as male. But the production of androgens by, by testicles is actually not a small thing, because androgens are very powerful hormones. Androgens, like testosterone, increase the mass of the muscle. They increase the strength of the muscle. They increase the lung size, the length and the density of the bones. They also reduce fear. And they are so powerful that it doesn't even take a lot of them to produce those changes. For example, before puberty, the testicles of male children produce very little androgens, yet male prepubertal children are already stronger than their female peers. So it doesn't take a lot of androgens to make a human taller, stronger, have better endurance and be more brave. Obviously, pre-Christian pagan Slavs, so our ancestors, did not have a clue about DNA. <laughs> so for them, a male was a person whose phenotype, so the way they looked, was male. And this is why, while talking about men in this podcast, I will every now and then say genetically and phenotypically male, or people with uninhibited expression of Y chromosome, or something like that. I will also be saying that because it sounds cool. <laughs> it sounds like I'm very smart. So, Well, you know, I am smart, but it's nice to have an extra special reason to sound smart too, like being able to say an inhibited expression of Y chromosome. Anyway, as I said, being genetically and phenotypically male was a part of being a man in the eyes of our ancestors, but it actually wasn't the only requirement. Because if you look at Slavic languages, particularly at Proto-Slavic, which was a language spoken by Slavs when they were still a small ethnic group, before any differentiation in Eastern, Western and Southern Slavs, well before development of distinctively different Slavic languages like Polish or Russian or Serbian, and before differentiation into Slavic nations. Uh, Proto-Slavic is a language that has been reconstructed by scholars using comparative methods applied to known Slavic languages and taking into consideration other Indo-European languages. 
And if you look at Proto-Slavic language, there is actually not a single word that can be used to describe only a man. There is not a single word that would mean a man and nothing else. What more, in Proto-Slavic language, there is only one word that can be used to describe a man, and this is the very same word that, can, that was used to describe a husband. The word I'm talking about is one I'm not sure how to pronounce. I think it's muž, but my, I might be wrong. I will put a link to this word so you can check and try to pronounce it yourself. Anyway, for our ancestors, ancestors, a man meant the same as a husband. And if you look at more than Slavic languages, it is actually still reflected there. In Polish, for example, a husband is mąż, but you can use the word mąż to say a man in a bit more old-fashioned way. The modern Polish word for a man is mężczyzna, and it is an adjectival noun, so a noun derived from an adjective męski, which means manly. And by the way, the adjective męski is derived from the noun mąż, which means a husband. It's pretty much the same in Russian, where you have a noun muž, meaning a husband, then you have the adjective muskoi, which means manly, and then you have the adjectival noun muschina, which means a man. If you want to read some more about the linguistic aspect of man and husband in Slavic languages, you are most welcome to visit Vitya's blog and read it there because I only speak Polish and a bit of Russian, so I don't really want to <laughs> produce myself in other Slavic languages like Czech <laughs> or Bulgarian, because I don't want to be disrespectful or say something wrong or, you know. Anyway, back to the men and husbands. Uh, so the meaning and etymology of those both words in Slavic languages is closely tied together as in the etymology of the Slavic words for women and wives. Actually, the linguistic mechanism of the evolution of the Slavic words for a wife and a woman in many Slavic languages, in Russian, for example, are absolutely the same as for the men and husbands. So in Proto-Slavic, there was the word žena, I hope I pronounce it right, and the word žena meant both a woman and a wife. The difference between žena and muž, so the Proto-Slavic woman and wife and the Proto-Slavic man and husband, is that in Proto-Slavic language there are other words to name an adult female human. Those other words are, again, I'm pronouncing it as I think it's right, but it doesn't mean that it is right, because it might not be, just so we're clear here. Anyway, the, the Proto-Slavic words for adult human female are niewiesta, dziewica, and baba. The first word, the niewiesta, is believed to mean something along the line of she who does not know. Uh, the second word, the dziewica, meant an unmarried woman or a girl. The word baba, I actually don't know where it came from, but in you know, till, till this day in many Slavic languages means an old woman or a married woman or a midwife or sometimes even a witch-like, you know, a, a hag, like Baba Yaga, who didn't have a ginger cat called Pumpkin. 
Anyway, there, are, there was at least three different, different ways of naming an adult human female in Proto-Slavic languages, but there was only one way to name a man. And this word, mush, also meant a husband. And if you want to talk about an unmarried man in Slavic languages, you can really only use words that mean or are related to words used for a you know, boy or a young person or even a baby. And this is a very, very unusual situation in Slavic languages. Because one thing that Slavic languages are super precise at are naming members of a family. And this precision can, can be seen in all Slavic languages and it can be traced back to the Proto-Slavic language. So, in pretty much every modern Slavic language, there are words like Polish świekra, which is the husband's mother, teściowa, which is the wife's mother, dziewierz, husband's brother, szwagier, which is wife's brother, zeuwa, which is husband's sister, or sneha, which is the wife of your son, and plenty more naming precisely who is who in a Slavic family. So what does it mean? It means that the double meaning of muž, so the, has, the man and the husband, is not accidental. It means that our ancestors did not think that an unmarried adult human male was actually a man. For our ancestors, a man was a married human with an inhibited expression of the Y chromosome. And everyone else, every other phenotypically male human was not a man, but, you know, a boy. So, if you were living among our ancestors in the early medieval ages and you were an adult phenotypically and genotypically male human, it was not enough, as it is today, to call yourself a man. In order to call yourself a man and for order to call you a man, you had to get yourself a wife. And it was not easy at all because there wasn't a single adult human Slavic female who would even look at you as a potential husband until you presented her with a wedding gift. And not a cheap one, but a proper, valuable wedding gift. And wealth was not something easy to come by in those times. Firstly, because any type of wealth had to be produced by hand. One couldn't just do the virtual thing like, I don't know, bitcoins or selling and reselling subprime mortgages. The money was real back then. Everything was gold or silver or copper or an actual sellable and usable products like grain or fabric. Nowadays, governments just print money and that money don't really have any value. We all agree that money, ha money have a value, but it really doesn't. There is no gold reserve to back up the paper money. And back then, in the early medieval ages, that was not the case. So back then, when wealth was real, in order to get it, one had to get the real thing. And 
So had to get something that had a real value, was usable and sellable, regardless of whether the financial market agreed on it or not. So a pre-Christian Slavic adult human male, if he wanted to become a man, he had to get rich. And there was a few ways in which he could do it. He could, for example, ask his family to help. But if he did that, if he got his father or brother to chip in towards the wedding gift, he also had to share his wife with the family member that chipped in. And I guess some of the Slavic adult human males did not mind sharing a wife, but some did. Well, actually, it seems most did mind quite a lot because as we know among pre-christian slavic pagans polyandry so a situation when a wife has many husbands wasn't actually very common what was more common was polygyny so a situation when a husband has many wives and does not share them with all other males so if one did not want to share his wife with a family member one had to get the wedding gift independently without relying on the family's wealth and there was a few ways of doing it one way was joining a drużyna so a retinue of a rich and powerful slavic kniaz so prince like for example mieszko I, a very powerful polish ruler from the reports of Ibrahim ibn Yaqub, we know that Mieszko supported the members of his drużyna in many ways, including paying a wedding gift on their behalf if they wanted to get married. I'm actually not sure if, after paying the wedding gift on behalf of his soldiers, Mieszko automatically got the right to the wife. If anyone knows how it worked, do let me know. But still, according to Ibrahim ibn Yaqub, there was like 3,000 soldiers in the drużyna of Mieszko I. So even providing that only 10% of them got married, it's still 300 wives to share with one Mieszko, who, by the way, had seven wives on his own. And I have no doubts that Mieszko was a very energetic and capable man, but there is just no physical way he could have time and energy to regularly use his co-marital rights to 300 wives. So, without a doubt, it was much better for a pre-Christian slave. I'm really sorry for Pumpkin. He is just so annoying today. It was much better for a pre-Christian slave to share his wife with a ruler who shared wives with over 300 men and had his own wives as well. It was much better than sharing a wife with his brother or father who did not have over 300 wives, but let's say only two or three. Still, one thing that becomes obvious from all of that is that a Slavic adult human male, in order to become a man or a like slash husband, had to master a skill of finding and keeping allies who were able and willing to help him out in the time of hardship or scarcity. He had to learn how to get other people to support him if he could not support himself. And that is a very, very important skill to have in any times, not only in medieval ages. 
But not every pre-Christian bachelor had a rich family or enough physical abilities or enough discipline to join the drużyna of a kniaz. Some, perhaps even most of early medieval Slavic bachelors, if they wanted to get married, they had to get rich on their own. So on their own, figure out how to put together a decent wedding gift. So one of the ways of getting rich on their own in medieval ages, actually still, even now, is to take the wealth from the wealthy ones. It's a little bit easier to do that nowadays with all the internet banking and financial scams and all sorts of money making financial instruments like, you know, those that contributed to the 2008 credit crunch. Although obviously the credit crunch was actually not stealing from the wealthy, but stealing from the not wealthy and making them even more poor. But in early medieval ages, among pre-Christian Slavs, they, there wasn't any internet scams or banks or any sort of organized markets where one could speculate. So the only way of stealing from the more or less wealthy was to actually physically steal the stuff. And the stuff that was worth anything was actually well protected. So you couldn't just walk in and grab it. You had to break in, fight your way into a well-protected town or, I don't know, a merchant convoy. And in order to do that, you have to have, you had to have at least a few equally unmarried and equally determined adult human. Actually, I see no reason why adult human females could not participate in a looting raid. I'm sure they could if they wanted. So, so let's backtrack and say that if you wanted to loot a wealthy target, you had to have the support of other skilled fighters equally as you determined to get rich quickly. And how to get the support of other fighters? Well, apart of having some decent fighting skills yourself, you have to know how to cooperate how to follow orders, how to be a part of a team, how to build and develop interpersonal relations, how to agree on plans and execute plans and, you know, military strategies. And all this stuff is not easy to figure out, you know? I mean, look at our society nowadays. Most of us don't have skills that our genetically and phenotypically male ancestors had to master before they could, could even be called a man, let alone a father or a leader. And, you know, the same sort of interpersonal skills were necessary to get wealthy without looting. Because not all of our male ancestors were fighters or warriors. Some, actually most, were primarily farmers or craftsmen or, I don't know, miners or beekeepers. And it's a hard truth to swallow for the modern male pagans, particularly those obsessed with warrior culture, you know, binge-watching Vikings and huffing and puffing while waving a sword. I'm fully aware I am being mean now and that I am exaggerating a tad, but it is still all to make a point which seems to be eluding so many people nowadays. And the point is, lasting, stable and wealthy society is not built by stealing and fighting. Societies are like that are built by cooperating, producing and exchanging wealth. 
because fighters and thieves do not produce anything. They can, at the very most, protect goods produced by others. And those others are regular, hard-working people who actually make real stuff, like food or tools to get food. So all the agricultural devices like plows or, I don't know, sickle or shovels or regular play knives. A sword won't feed anyone long term, mostly because a sword is not good for anything other than killing people. A sword won't protect you from a wolf or a bear. It won't even protect you from a skilled archer. Yet, if you look at this silly TV series, all the medieval warriors walk around and travel with swords ready to fight something. Like, really? You get out of a boat on an unknown shore and the first thing you need is a sword? For what? <laughs> all these enemies that are waiting for you well outside the reach of your sword, but I guess it looks cool. So nobody argues. Never mind. Where was I? Producing wealth. Our ancestors, who did not care about looking cool because they had real problems like how to make the fields produce enough harvest to feed the whole family through the winter, or how to dig the iron from the ground, or how to cut down a big tree, which was absolutely 100% needed to build boats, for example. So how to cut down a big tree without being killed by the tree falling? So the important stuff, the important professions that are so often ignored nowadays, they were super important in the times of our ancestors. So all the stuff one could do to feed people like farming, fishing, hunting, or to protect people from elements like making clothes or building houses or boats to get people what they needed, so trading or crafting. All this stuff was super important and could be done to get rich. And all these peaceful activities also require strength, endurance and bravery, so the basic built-in by testosterone features of a genotypical and phenotypical male but also the peaceful activities require other skills like planning or common sense or negotiation, counting, cooperation, people skills, determination, creativity, or I don't know, navigation or map reading. So the wedding gift that a Slavic bachelor offered their future wives was not only a proof of material wealth, in the society of our ancestors, in the times when Mother Nature continuously verified every single useful skill or ability, you know, physical strength, mental strength, endurance, health, ingenuity, everything, in the times of pre-Christian Slavs, the wedding gift was actually a proof that the future husband was able to look after himself and his material wealth which in turn meant that he probably could also look after his wife and his future children, which was the point of being a man in the eyes of our ancestors. So, a pre-Christian Slavic man was not born, he was made. 
Most of the time he was self-made by years or even decades of effort, hard work, learning, practicing and mastering the skills that were necessary for a human with uninhibited expression of Y chromosome to become a real man. Because the Slavic wedding ceremony, which was called Svajba, it was in a way an initiation ritual, a ceremony that honored and acknowledged years of or decades of hard work and a ceremony that was an initiation into manhood. Before the wedding, a person with an inhibited expression of Y chromosome was considered a boy. And after Spajba, he was considered, seen and treated as a man. The wedding being a moment when a human male becomes a grown-up is reflected in Slavic languages up to this very day. Every single word that is of Slavic origin, so not borrowed from another language, every single word used to describe an unmarried man, like Polish chłopak, młodzieniec, or very old-fashioned junak, every single of these words originate from Proto-Slavic and actually Pan-Slavic too, words describing immaturity, youth, or low social standing. So chłopak comes from chłop, which means serve. Młodzieniec originates from a word meaning a child. So really, having balls and a penis was not enough to be accepted and invited among the proper men. To become a man, a human male had to successfully go through a relentless selection that was designed to separate the boys from the grown-up. If you could not take on a challenge, if you were incapable of holding down a responsibility, if you could not work hard, persevere, train, learn new skills, adjust, adapt, and cooperate, you are outmate. You died as a boy and nobody, a part of maybe your mother, cared. In order for your family, your children, wife, and your community to care, you had to show them that you are worth caring. You had to show them that you are worthy to be called and respected as a proper man. And you know why proper man were, men were respected? Because they bloody deserve it. Because going through all this effort to get the wedding gift and a wife, it was only the beginning of the lifelong test put together and prepared for men by the pre-Christian Slavic society. Because the list of responsibilities put on the shoulders of pre-Christian Slavic men was very, very long. They had to father children, and by father, I don't mean being a biological father, because that any sexually mature boy can be. By father, I mean being a father to children. So, keeping them safe, providing for them, look after them, and actually not only the children, for the wives or wives as well. And it wasn't easy to do in medieval ages, it wasn't a matter of getting some qualifications, finding a job and working 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. To provide only food in medieval ages, one had to, for example, cultivate the land. So, know what to plant, when to plant, how to plant. 
when to harvest, how to harvest, and then obviously in what amount. Even fishing wasn't easy back then because there wasn't any shops with fishermen gear, mass produced in mechanized factories. Every single thing had to be done by hand. So in order to have a net, for example, one had to either make it or have enough wealth to pay someone for making it by hand. Providing a shelter or keeping your family safe were big tasks too. Any sort of shelter, including a plain hut, had to be built by hand in a way that allowed this hut to withstand rain, wind, snow. So, you know, one had to have some skills to do it. If you look at the most basic responsibilities of the like least distinguished, completely regular Slavic men, you know, the men, they required every single skill that were being tested in the boy slash bachelor period of their life. And some, because a man did not have to only figure out how to get a wedding gift. He had to literally, day by day, figure out how to multiply the wedding gift. Because what was enough to get a wife wasn't enough to keep her safe, fed, and look after her through her pregnancy and then provide not only for the wife, but for the child or children too. So, a Slavic man, after he became a man, in order to keep being a man, had to know how to organize agricultural work or trading trips or, I don't know, mining efforts. He had to be able to plan ahead and take into consideration the weather, productivity of the land, a strategy for military expedition, or, I don't know, the plans of the enemies or neighbors who, after all, kept producing young human males who also were keen and willing to get rich so they potentially could raid the man's land. So the man had to prepare for this possibility. And, you know, I'm sure there were very many men who did not last very long in the Slavic world of men who just could not do it. It was too hard for them and they failed. And if they failed at being a man, they either fell into poverty or died or both. But on the other hand, those men who succeeded, those who were able to master all those skills and fulfill all those tasks the best, Those Slavic men who had most fertile wives who were able to look after them so they in turn were able to give birth to healthy children. Those men who had most wealth, most slaves or mercenaries. Those who were able to organize and plan ahead the best for so long that they actually managed to get old. Those men when due to age and lower levels of testosterone their strength and endurance were failing They were then allowed to continue support their families and communities with their life experience and wisdom. Because, you know, contrary to the claims of some very mistaken people, pre-Christian Slavs did not live in communism. They, as famously wrote Procopius of Caesarea, lived in more or less direct democracy, where the biggest decisions were made on Viets which was kind of a popular gathering like Old English mood or Germanic thing. And on Viet, the elders, so the most mature, most experienced, successful and most manly of all Slavic men, 
they played a very significant role as advisors. And they were listened to because those men, the most successful men, fathers and heads of their families, they have proven with their life that they know what they're talking about. Every single day for years and decades, they took upon themselves the responsibility for others and they did not fail. They were capable of putting away their own comfort, their own rest or peace of mind, just to provide comfort, rest and peace of mind to others. They were able to get the first wedding gift and multiply it and keep multiplying it until they build a whole clan, which in Slavic languages is called Rod or Rud. And those men were the patriarchs. They were the rulers in the original Slavic patriarchy. And you know what? Rightfully so, because those men's life's achievement was the word as our ancestors knew it. It was those men, the successful husbands and fathers, who were responsible for building the settlements and towns and developing new trading routes and finding new fields and new ways of cultivating the land. So if they built the world for others, it was only right that they ruled the world they built. And what? has happened to the patriarchy since then. Due to the collaborative effort of Judeo-Christian ideas and feudalism, with the progress of science and technology, we as species started to dissociate more and more from the reality. And the word men started to be applied to anyone with balls and penis, regardless of whether this anyone has achieved anything, built anything, or contributed in any way to the well-being and the future of the rod, so clan, or in wider sense, the community. Those quote-unquote men, without achieving anything whatsoever, decided that they have all the wisdom, all the power, all the right, and then they proceeded to exercise their superiority by taking the power and rights from every single human who does not have fully expressed Y chromosome. So, you know, nowadays those men can completely ruin the lives of million families, like those bankers who were responsible for the 2008 crisis, and they still get to call themselves men. Because in the world they created, the reality does not affect them in any way. They get to spin the story however they like. They don't accept any responsibility for anyone. They don't want any consequences of anything they do. They haven't built anything meaningful or lasting in their lives, neither for themselves nor for anyone else, If we look at them through the pre-Christian Slavic lens, they are boys and they don't care. And we don't care either. We are ruled by a bunch of immature boys and we just take it. Somehow, somewhere along the lines, we stop seeing manliness as being responsible and capable and started seeing manly as looking phenotypically male. And then, 
On top of that, we started looking down at people who actually take upon themselves the responsibilities that used to, in the times of our ancestors, belong to the real men. We, as society, look down at single mothers as those who, you know, are pitiful and somehow worse. And the biological fathers whose whose bloody responsibility should be to be taking care of their children, they just leave. And after they abandon their responsibility, they are somehow seen as, you know, lucky. They get to enjoy their life. They get to have the freedom because, you know, as they say, boys will be boys. And the sad thing is that it's actually true. Boys will be boys. They will always remain boys. They will never become men unless they take the responsibility for the future of their family, clan, and community. And I'm absolutely not saying here that every single phenotypical human male must become a father before he can call himself a man. I'm not saying that because nowadays children are not what they were in the times of our ancestors. In the early medieval times, children were literally the future of the humankind. The mortality, particularly maternal and infant mortality, was so high that without having lots and lots of children to make up for the high mortality, any population was literally facing extinction. So, in the times of our ancestors, men were expected to build and ensure the future of the community. And nowadays, it should be the same. We should start expecting more of men. Because as we see, without expectations, they just get lazy, spoiled and entitled. To the point that they actually think that they can tell women what to do and how to be. Even though they, the men haven't actually do or become anything themselves. What I'm also saying is that, knowing the history and the meaning of the Slavic tradition, the male followers of Slavic faith should ask themselves a series of very, very difficult questions. The first one should be, am I a man or a boy? Do I deserve to call myself a man? Have I built something lasting and meaningful, something that will contribute to the well-being and the future of the next generation? Have I ever taken responsibility for myself? Have I ever taken responsibility for others? What ought to be the main concern in my life and why it must not be me? So... Are you the Rodnovers with uninhibited expression of Y chromosome? Are you actually Slavic men? Or are you just stuck in the realm of the boys? And I'm going to end with this question. That is all for what I wanted to say today. I'm pretty sure that I've managed to offend someone. And, you know, that's okay. I think that proper grown-up men will not hold it against me and neither will anyone else a part of the cohort of sword-waving boys. But that's okay too, because I think that it's very, very important for any follower of Slavic faith to know that there is a real wisdom in the Slavic tradition. That Slavic tradition is more than just a bunch of gods to worship, altars to decorate or symbols to tattoo on your skin. 
there is just so much more to it. And here in Vitya's project, we want to dig it all out, put it all together and well, just keep searching for the Slavic soul. If you have anything to add or say, anything positive or negative, just let us know on our email, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube channel. As always, I will put all the links in the podcast's notes. Thank you very much for all the comments we received so far. They are all read, answered and very much appreciated. I also thank you for listening today and until next time. Swava! Hey.